The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and, of course, past performance does not guarantee future returns. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. Kia ora and welcome to the final fold for 2020. My name is Duncan Grieve and I'm the host of this podcast which aims to cover the media and sort of related industries in all uh, complexity and glory and chaos. I want to do a special shout out to Vodafone Business for sponsoring us. We're a business that's with Vodafone and it's been fantastic and the thing I would say is that the media feels like both a super niche topic but also one that touches everything and I'm really really grateful that they see that there is value in having uh, discussion in the weeds of this subject so thank you so much to Vodafone for being a great partner to the fold. So what I'm going to do here is a good old-fashioned monopod. For those who are uninitiated, that means it's me talking until I collapse about a particular subject. This year it is to try and wrap 2020 for the New Zealand media, but I'll take a few little side streets along the way. It's going to be a wild ride, but hopefully if you are into this hyper-specific topic, then it will be of interest to you. As always, these are my perspectives on this. They're certainly not the only ones that you could rationally have. I'm going to go through the big media companies and tell you what I sort of think of where they're at and what they achieved and didn't in the course of this all-time weird year for our media. So a quick preamble, I mean, COVID-19 is clearly the dominant story of the year, both in terms of a subject to be considered by our media and our journalists in particular, but it's also one that has been so well canvassed that I don't want to dwell particularly on it, except where there are sort of lasting consequences flowing out of it for the companies concerned. The one thing I would say is that I think it helped as a story. I think it really helped journalism and the media rediscover their purpose. I think over the last few years, as we've gone through this kind of great disruption, this great digital transition, there has been a tendency, which is very natural, to get preoccupied with the mechanics of that, with how you make the shift and what the new revenue models are. And I'm as guilty as anyone of that. But in so doing, you can get kind of distracted from what it is we're here for. And you have an event like the pandemic, and suddenly the whole country is paying attention. You know, everyone's ratings and metrics were through the roof and out the other side. But also you've got a very keen sense of you know, what your value is to society. And, you know, I think through March, April, uh, May and beyond, you really, you could feel the whole eyes of the country on you when 
things went well tonally or when there were great stories broken, you could feel the impact of them. When the public, rightly or wrongly, sort of felt like there was some kind of issue with the presentation or some other mechanic of the coverage, I'm thinking particularly of the press gallery here, you know, it got quite intense. But fundamentally, I think journalism had a pretty extraordinary year in New Zealand. It seems totally churlish to single any reporters out, but I think particularly for me, Kristen Hall at TVNZ and Michael Mora at three. I mean, the six o'clock news rediscovered its power, I think, and became more of a a mass and multi-demographic medium than perhaps it has been in a while. I'm sure some would dispute that. But the stories that they broke around failures at the border and managed isolation, which prompted fast, impactful change from government, you could really sense that had those stories not been broken, it's entirely possible that we would have had more community transmission, longer lockdowns, and you only have to sort of look at countries that have struggled to contain it to know how important that was. So, you know, I think there were many journalists who did extraordinary work, but there was something about the power of the six o'clock news when added to those stories that really, really, I think, showed us something. And as Tim Murphy pointed out in newsroom, I think the whole press gallery kind of covered themselves in glory this year. Really, really impressive work. Okay, now I'm going to get into it. I'm going to start by talking not actually about any New Zealand media companies, but about Google and Facebook. And that's because I think we're actually at a bit of a turning point in terms of the sort of social and political relationship with those companies. I think over the past decade, they've gone from being these very exciting and not particularly critically examined companies that have made our lives easier and richer and different in many ways in terms of the social web and the various Google search related products. I think over the past few years, we've seen the sort of the downsides, the anti-competitive behavior, the sort of indifference towards the broader societal consequences of some of their work. But the thing that's really sort of given it this urgency is that both the antitrust cases against Facebook in the US and particularly in terms of our part of the world, The ACCC's, that's the Australian version of the Commerce Commission's sort of scrutiny of Facebook and Google in particular. Why does this matter for us? It matters for us because there is legislation before Parliament in Australia which ultimately portends a kind of a new way of the sort of political relationship with those companies being enacted. And that means, and particularly that affects the media. Just to kind of give a very brief overview of it, the ACCC issued a report that says Google and Facebook have essentially taken revenue that should rightly flow to the news media companies in Australia. I actually don't think that's particularly true. I think that they have basically created new product categories in social and search that have had an impact on the news media's revenue, but I don't think it's actually that they have taken revenue that rightfully comes to them. They've just created better products that have had impacts on them. But that's almost by the by because this legislation sits before Parliament and if enacted, it would force Google and Facebook within Australia to go through an arbitration process where both they and various large media companies would put effectively almost like a revenue sharing or a compensation agreement in front of a committee and then the committee would choose one of those two bids and that would structure how the search and social companies compensate the media companies for the right to effectively display or link to their content through social or through search. This matters because the stakes are incredibly high. I mean, this is potentially a huge revenue stream for news and for media if it goes well, which honestly I'd welcome. Like this business has shrunk massively, become 
less profitable, become more unstable, and it's just become a lot harder to do its essential function. And like I say, this year we really saw how essential it was. But the mechanism by which you do it really matters. And I would much more be in favour of a digital services tax than what's being proposed, and I'll sort of briefly top line why in a second. The reason it matters for New Zealand is that Google and Facebook, you know, and I've spoken to people at both those companies over the past sort of six months or so on, on more than one occasion, and they're extremely upset about this. They view it as an unfair framing of the relationship between news and search and social, and they are very genuinely considering quite radical steps, including on Facebook's side, preventing news from being shared, and on Google's side, potentially even removing search as a product from Australia. These things, they're kind of unimaginable. You know, as much as we saw the power of legacy media again this year, Facebook remains the way hundreds of thousands of us and millions in Australia, maybe millions here, get their news. You know, search as a product, I can't really imagine how to sort of relearn how to live my life without search. I'm sure that's the case for much of our listeners too. Hundreds of thousands of businesses dependent in greater or smaller ways on both search and social. And if they become less useful products um, or, or are just taken away, then that's going to be a problem. The reason that I think it's not inconceivable is that if the same thing were to be enacted or enacted in a bolder way around the world, fundamentally Google and Facebook will face massive challenges to their profitability. They will go from, and I think this is to a certain extent inevitable, they'll go from being these high growth tech companies to be something like utilities, you know, like an electricity company or a telco that provides a sort of a fairly basic service. And those companies are inherently much lower margin, whereas Google and Facebook operate on just insane profit margins, which is why they're amongst the four or five most highly valued companies in the world and continue to grow at extraordinary pace year on year in terms of their value and their revenue. So while it might seem crazy to turn off those products in retaliation in Australia, the stakes are really high. And they've, they've already, both of them, said that we won't operate in China because of the restrictions posed there. So if they'll do that to a country of a, a billion people, then there's no reason why they wouldn't do it to one of a bit over 20 million. And certainly because New Zealand often follows suit in terms of its uh, legal structures. They're, they're often very similar in, in Australia and New Zealand, and certainly I've spoken to people in government who are watching it closely and considering whether to enact something similar here. There is also the potential that because there are only very, very small Google and Facebook offices here, they're much more likely to just say, well, whatever we do for Australia, we'll also do for New Zealand, and we wouldn't have a lot of power to impact that. So obviously there is every chance of, and it's probably still most likely that there's some kind of detente reached between the media companies and Facebook and Google or between the government and all parties, that spectre of a quite radical change uh, remains right there. And the reason why that, that I think would be interesting is right now, probably those companies account for about 40% of our traffic at the spin-off, probably a similar number at some of the other sites might be less for stuff for reasons we'll talk about later. But what I think have the effect of doing is like search and social are kind of where you can really impact your audience. You can grow it. You can change it. And they've learned for those to be their news sources. You take news out of them. Some of them will come back and learn new processes. Some of them won't. Like I say, the stakes are incredibly high. And it's not a story that's had a lot of attention here. But I think in terms of the potential 
impact on the news media in, in so many different ways. It remains one that we should all be watching. Now I will get into the New Zealand companies and the one I think is sort of unquestionably the, to, to my mind anyway, the media company of the year, the one that's had the most impressive year is stuff. Just a kind of extraordinary year given that it came out of five or six years of being half for sale and, and half an unwanted stepchild of its parent company in Australia. During the lockdown, during that period when both the work was really important and the revenues were collapsing, it stared down a very aggressive attempt by um, Michael Boggs and NZME to sort of take ownership of it. There are sort of differing accounts of how close that got, but it felt very possible at the time. Then out of the blue, Sinead Boucher, the CEO, buys it for a dollar and almost immediately starts a sort of a run of big, bold, public moves that collectively have the impact of really rewiring what this company is about and making it a much more outwardly purpose-driven company than we've probably seen from any real scale media business in New Zealand for a while. During the lockdown, it launched a sort of reader revenue scheme through Press Patron with direct donations from readers. They haven't, to my knowledge, released numbers on that, but I think they're very happy with them. Similarly to the spin-off, it's a bit of a pay-what-you-want kind of a model, and it doesn't really change your relationship to the product. Well, there's still talk that they might go behind a paywall, but for now, I think it actually suits their sort of purpose-driven style to have that posture. They, within a month or two, announced that they were taking what's always, what they've had is a quite principled and aggressive stance against Facebook one step further by no longer posting their work there. This was a big story even internationally. The Columbia Journalism Review wrote about it and to their credit they've stuck with it. As much as Facebook is a sort of a complex entity to engage with, it remains the source of anywhere between sort of 10 and 20 percent of uh, most news organizations traffic. It doesn't go away completely because your readers can still share stories but if you're not sharing them through your main page, stuff has a main page with a million followers, you're going to have a massively diminished amount of traffic and therefore corresponding uh, CPM-based advertising revenue out of that. But they've not only done that, they called it a trial, they're still doing it now, which is pretty impressive. They've recruited really well, you know, most notably in, in Anna Fifield, who you know, has come from the Washington Post's Beijing bureau to lead the Dominion Post. And both her and Tracy Watkins, who's taken over the Sunday Star Times, have really Given those papers a massive sense of curation and style, you know, the Sunday Star Times is full of long-form news features and, and really good commentary. You know, it's probably my favourite newspaper in the country at the moment. And I think the fact that they're starting to care deeply about the products is, is really impressive. The big story towards the end of the year was Tamato Puno, the Kamen Parahi led apology for 160 years of often racist coverage of Māori and Māori issues. And it didn't land perfectly, you know. There was there was always going to be critique of it. There's a certain sense that by doing it publicly at effectively the start of a journey to kind of reconcile with that, there could be a sense that you're being seen to ask for applause before you've actually done the work. But there was actually, I think broadly speaking, and I think you saw this in Rawiri Waititi's extraordinary speech in Parliament that week, that it's actually been really well received, that acknowledgement. And 
It's not going to be easy. You know, you saw with the letters to the editor that were published in the Dominion Post during that week that readers and and editors are going to have to come to terms with what that means in practice, and that will be necessarily a long road. But I think, broadly speaking, it suggested a news organisation that was scrutinising itself and its product and its relationship to its readers and broader constituency in a way that was quite brave and bold. And the fact that it was Carmen's initiative and that she was supported by senior management to take it through into that realm and to present as loudly as it did is very impressive. One thing I would say about Stuff is that it's also made a big play about treating its staff better. It did they did take a pay cut, but that was rescinded earlier than they anticipated and has been refunded. And they also paid a bonus to staff at the end. That's awesome, and you know by all accounts, the revenue now that it's a private company, they don't have to declare their revenues the same way they did before. But revenue has rebounded well, according to my sources. There is a little bit of attention there, and that they have like most media organisations, covered the wage subsidy debate very strongly. They've also kept their wage subsidy while paying a large bonus to staff. That's just a bit tense, but undoubtedly they, and like many large corporates, took it in good faith and remain eligible under the, to be fair, very sloppily written terms of it. But there is something about the publishing columns castigating large companies for not returning the subsidy when they return to profitability and holding on to it yourselves. But in general, staff has had an extraordinary year. A lot of that credit must go to Sinead for her bold leadership. So well done to them. I'm going to switch to NZME now, who also, to be fair, just just to be an equal opportunity, uh, Noka, who also took the wage subsidy, have uh, remained profitable and failed to return it. Well, as recently as, as the weekend, publishing great critiques of companies which have retained the wage subsidy while while also remaining profitable over the longer term. But, you know, to to give NZME credit, I think where staff has focused on its product, NZME is focused on its business. And time will tell which of those strategies was the smarter one. Not like NZME didn't publish a hell of a lot of good journalism in 2020. But if you look at its releases, its moves, it feels like it was more preoccupied with building a sustainable business than sort of reimagining itself and its various products. The most important metric by far is premium subscriptions. For them, they're just shy of 50,000. They might, uh, you know, as of late November, they might well have crossed that, that number now. They have publicly stated that they want to have digital exceed print by 2023 and have over 250,000 subscribers total by 2025. Honestly, that feels achievable for them based on their current progress. I still think that there is something a little bit muddled in the strategy of trying to retain mass reach and also have a premium product that's behind a hard paywall. But clearly it's working and you know they've sort of stocked up in business journalists and they still have a very strong suite of journalists across the Herald. So... That's very much where their focus is, is growing that part. And to give them credit, they have recruited uh, well for the board. They had a kind of extraordinary moment where they lost chair Peter Cullinane sort of hours before their AGM. But they have, in the last month or so, recruited Guy Horrocks, who's a very well-regarded technology entrepreneur, particularly within the app space. I think you know when you are a 
paywalled, subscription-driven media company, which NZME is, is trying to become as fast as it can. It's incumbent upon you to have a really, really strong and responsive technology piece. And having someone at board level with those kind of skills is probably a, a critical way to start achieving that. And if they can get a lead there and become much stronger in terms of the, the product and how responsive it is and how they can sort of start to bridge that gap between 50,000 and 100,000 subscribers, then they'll do very well. And one marker of how well they've done is is their share price, which at the start of the year was, was around 40 cents, got down as low as, as 16 cents, I think, during the, the depths of the lockdown and right now sits at about 66 cents, so is up uh, sort of 60% year on year. That's pretty outstanding performance for a media company, which as much as the sector has had a good year in terms of its purpose, and, and you know by all accounts the second half of, of 2020 has been good for revenue, remains really challenged. You know, like the, the fundamental dynamics of it haven't, haven't changed. So... I think NZME will be closing 2020 feeling very satisfied with with what it's done with the business. And to my mind, figuring out the business is always number one because, you know, that effectively you get that right and then you get the luxury of being able to work on your your editorial and your product. But if you don't have your business strategy in place, then ultimately there's a ticking clock over whatever good work you do on the editorial side. Uh, so I'll hit Sky now. Really, really tough year. I mean, they're they are a company which had a new CEO in March of 2019 who very quickly decided that the strategy was to go all in on sport. Doesn't mean that they didn't have entertainment products, but they thought that sport was their unique selling point and that should be the centerpiece of their offering. It was the thing that they did best that no one else really touched. And then barely a year after he started... And after having inked some very eye-wateringly expensive deals to retain certain sporting products, the pandemic comes and wipes out sport for a really critical part of the year. And while it has come back in various capacities, it isn't what it was. And the total amount of product from teams like the All Blacks was was significantly down on a normal year. For all that, I think Sky had a, had a pretty impressive year. It acquired Lightbox before the pandemic hit and successfully merged it with Neon. That's the best subscription video on demand service in New Zealand, I think. Maybe even including Netflix as far as content goes, certainly not as far as technology stack. But the actual platform itself has improved by taking Lightbox's tech and I think having a really strong and differentiated product to sell and that is at the right price and allows them to take that amazing suite of entertainment rights they have and, and market it to a different generation and style of consumer, I think is was something they absolutely had to do. And Neon is finally what it sort of promised to be for so long. They had other high points too. Super Rugby Aotearoa was probably the most successful rugby season that New Zealand's had in a long, long time. You know, sold-out stadiums, fantastic games. You know, in a similar way to the way journalism rediscovered itself, Super Rugby Aotearoa felt like it was a product that meant something to both the players and audiences, uh, both in terms of the symbolic fact of it happening at all 
after New Zealand got through the, the lockdown, the rest of the world was still, you know, no place to, to do anything like that. But also because it was New Zealand teams playing one another every week, which really felt like they meant something, which I think Super Rugby has really struggled with that for a number of years, as has ITM Cup or whatever its latest name is. So that that was, was a pretty impressive effort given uh, where it sat in sort of March and April, you know, where its bonds were sometimes trading at kind of scary numbers. You know, there was some sense that it wasn't necessarily going to survive the year. The fact that it has and and actually survived it pretty well is, is really impressive. That hasn't been reflected in the share price as yet, though that, that may well change if they can sort of sustain that sort of signs of light that they saw towards the end of the year. The biggest news of the second half was Sophie Maloney being uh, instated as CEO after Martin Stewart uh, resigned, you know, basically 18 months into his tenure. That must have been premature, but I think he, he leaves the company in, in pretty good shape. Certainly, he brought a burst of energy into into its activities that, that was, was sorely needed after John Follett sort of tra- trod water for probably the last five years of his terms and never really got digital. I think probably there was too much energy and, and not enough strategy would be an outside diagnosis of it. And you can see that in a way with the revival of this idea of a, a sort of a digital version of the set-top box that is was on the product roadmap was abandoned when Stuart started and has now been put back on the agenda, effectively delaying it by a fairly serious and and consequential amount of time. Um, Maloney is really well regarded internally um, by all accounts. She's the former chief legal and people officer, the former chief commercial officer, and has a hard job, but but I think has a a lot, lot going for her, both in terms of her sort of strengths as a leader and the internal, you know, what what the, the sort of state that Sky was left. And uh, one thing that is worth noting is there is some sense that there is tension with New Zealand Rugby, which is both its most important contract and a not insignificant shareholder. This is because Sky is both its partner and its major revenue stream. And with so much in play with Sanzar and uh, the you know how much just how much rugby and what form it will take will be delivered in 2021. There is going to be tension between we want to deliver less product on New Zealand rugby's part potentially, but they want the same uh, income from Sky. So we'll see how all that shakes out. But yeah, I think again Sky is in a pretty good position given all the challenges it faced in 2021. To switch tack to RNZ which had a pretty awful start to the year. I think the the concert debacle was almost symptomatic of the bind it finds itself in where it has a very well-regarded brand and a, you know, a lot of its sort of core uh, radio products are very good and, and beloved by their audiences, but their audiences are fundamentally... They're, they're much older and probably much whiter than New Zealand as a whole. And they have for years understood that and wanted to change that dynamic. One of the few big things available to them was to go and try and reach a, a youth audience with a, with a different kind of radio product. You could make the argument about whether radio was the right medium to reach that audience in 2020. But certainly when they've tried to do it digitally with uh, with the wireless, for example, 
it's just it's just a hard job. You have to really resource the hell out of it and stay with it for a long period of time. And I don't think they ever they did either of those things with the wireless. They were clearly going to try and do that with this youth radio brand, um, which I'm sure would have had a strong digital component. But for whatever reason, even though minister, board, and uh, management all knew what was going on, you know, some, something went badly wrong. Uh, when they advertised for the position of station manager, it blew up, became a total political football. It brought out sort of a whole bunch of RNZ concert fans who were calling it cultural vandalism, and the whole thing just basically got, got blown up very quickly. And the fact of not being able to stay with it, not being able to withstand that that storm is a real problem for them and kind of puts them in a, in a bad position in terms of how the potential TVNZ-RNZ merger goes forward, which I'll, I'll talk about more when I talk about TVNZ. It also, I mean, I probably shouldn't harp on this, but that ad campaign that they ran just effectively attacking uh, their commercially funded competitors was just a terrible idea, terribly executed bad writing and engendered a lot of ill will towards an organisation that actually has had a massive amount of goodwill from the private sector media prior to now. Um, I don't know how that happened but um, and probably not worth dwelling on, but it was really irksome seeing that around, particularly when the pandemic hit and the business models of private media were were uh, you know under extreme stress. They had a pretty decent year on, on the personnel front, promoting Marnie Dunlop to, to host Midday Report, where she's done a fantastic job. Uh, Te Anua Horehanginui um, had a fantastic year. As recently as today, she, she had a brilliant story about uh, police illegally photographing um, young Māori kids uh, in the Wairarapa that shows that they're just giving more prominence to Māori stories than they might have historically and you know, even comparatively small things like having Māori place names alongside the um, the Pākehā names during the weather feel like they're symptomatic of it. Then, you know, along with the um, increased use of Tereo during news broadcasts, yeah, that's an organisation that is that is trying to do better there. They also lost some key Māori staff, which you know, may may yet become a bigger story. But you know, they're, they're not they're not sending Pat. The other thing that they've they've done is is retained, I think, a formidable lead in the podcast space. I think that's that's one area that hasn't particularly been commercialised here. We have uh, hired our first podcast manager in Jane Yee, who's recording this. Thank you, Jane. She's done an awesome job. Uh, NZME has also hired their first set of podcasts later this year. And I think that's a sector which I would expect to grow considerably in 2021, 2022, as you just see the energy that's coming out of it internationally. And while RNZ is not a commercial player in that space, the fact that they've been there and have resourced it well has given them some some advantages for sure. But in general, I think RNZ remains in a bit of a, a holding pattern that it's it's not quite able to make the advances that it would like to. It still feels like fundamentally it's a, a radio station. And you kind of see that everywhere, even down to like the final media watch of the year, which was largely a sustained attack on on ZB. And you know, honestly, they weren't wrong about some of the contradictions in its coverage, but you know, this is a 27-minute long piece that was wrapping the year in media, and for it to be largely uh, sort of focused on what is 
its closest competitor and across the aisle and rather than looking at the scale of the industry as a whole and and reflecting on some of the extraordinary journalism that was done, that, that just felt like it was symptomatic of a sort of a smallness of thinking which will probably need to change if it is to become what it desperately needs to be and New Zealand needs it to be, to be honest, which is a, a big non-commercial public service focused uh, media entity. It took what advantage, I mean, it's done this for a long time, right? Like it's taken these sort of legacy advantages that it's had in terms of the scale of its audience and really done the best job you could expect it to with those advantages. Uh, doesn't mean that it's fair, but it, you know that's all you can do is play the hand that you've got in front of you. I think that the the 6pm news became the sort of centre of New Zealand life during the pandemic. You saw that in terms of its ratings. Um, that and the 1pm bulletins were kind of the rhythm of lockdown life, and that's had a long tail of increased engagement with what, you know, a few years felt a few years ago felt like a dying medium. The fact of its gallery coverage and its press gallery in, in Parliament having a much more neutral and sort of, I guess, restrained tone to the style of, of News Hub, which to be honest, I prefer. I, I like the kind of the, the energy and playfulness of News Hub. But I think during that period when there was such overwhelming support for the government and, you know, and, and to be fair, some quite hostile reactions to press gallery. It was a real advantage to TVNZ to have that much more restrained style. And and it has managed to kind of position itself as the, the New Zealand channel in a way that it didn't really feel like a few years ago. In some ways, it felt like three was more of a kind of quintessentially and characteristically New Zealand product. And I think TVNZ has very adroitly manoeuvred uh, back into that space. It has a number of advantages. It has TVNZ on demand, which again, strategically, they've invested in it. It's It continues to go really well. The slate that they've announced for 2021 is probably more local programming than we've seen since maybe the 80s. It's just a huge volume of big tentpole shows, both sort of re- revived uh, formats like pop stars and, and sort of new Elements. The thing that will be really hard, and honestly, I don't know if they will be able to do it, is just getting it produced because the amount of production capacity in New Zealand is almost nil with the likes of uh, Lord of the Rings just sucking up huge amounts of crew. And uh, so that will be an interesting thing to watch. And, you know, for all this, its revenues remain challenged, but it is largely doing incredibly well. And while it has a a very different kind of a um, opponent in, in Discovery, who I'll talk about next. It, it really is taking its incumbency advantages and, and deploying them in a very smart way, I think. MediaWorks. MediaWorks is no longer, in some ways, or at the very least, it's, it's diminished. It basically started the year in seemingly mortal peril, uh, at least as far as the, the TV side goes. And... It ends the year with Michael Anderson, the, the outgoing CEO, having to pull off one of the sort of executive high wire acts of the year, I, I think, you know, in terms of that getting the sale 
to to discovery through and and the move of MediaWorks's radio and outdoor business into a new building in um, College Hill, which honestly is probably the best headquarters in media. It's just it's got all this kind of Ortex soundproofing stuff deployed in really artful ways. It's got totally state of the art kit. It's got a, a huge entertaining space. It looks like made to sell, which is always the lifeblood of of radio uh, and and outdoor. I mean, they, they are sales machines fundamentally. And as in Cam Wallace, who's the the new CEO of MediaWorks, is radio and and outdoor side that you know the probably the most highly touted executive to come into media for a long, long time. Uh, Cam Wallace was, he was a, a senior executive at, at Air New Zealand, probably the, the public face of it for quite some time. Really well-liked, really smart guy. I've met with him a couple of times since he's taken on that role. And one thing I think he has the potential to do is do what Air New Zealand was brilliant at, which is in terms of having relationships with government and helping advocate for what the what the industry needed to to sort of get through over, over a longer longer period of time media's always been really bad at that media fights each other and honestly didn't really need the government for much for a long period of time now it probably does need both in terms of regulation and potentially support more uh, it needs to have a better relationship with government and really needs to speak with one voice, which we just still aren't doing. And I think you know, it could be that uh, someone like Cam, is, who comes in from the outside, is, is well-liked and is able to maybe broker some kind of um, ability for, for this sector to be just a bit smarter in terms of the way it engages with government. But yeah, it's a um, discovery as a new player in the, the, the television market there's a lot of questions about it going in. There still remains a lot that we don't know, but the fact that they haven't made any um, obvious cuts to most prominently the news operation is is really promising. The fact that they seem to have retained their relationship with New Zealand On Air, most of their core properties got funded again for 2021. Glenn Kine, who comes out of sales to lead the company, is really well-liked and a super smart person. So, you know, for a company that really just did not look in a good position um, a year ago. Pretty stunning outcome, to be honest. So that's all of the big players. The one that I obviously haven't talked about is Bauer because Bauer uh, collapsed during 2020. And I think that was such a an extraordinary heart attack moment. And I, you know, I still feel for all the staff who went through that to find out on Zoom that you were done as of immediately is it's just a it's a horrific thing to go through but in in some respects and I'll now talk a little bit about some of the smaller media players it allowed for a kind of regeneration within the magazine space you know you saw ensemble and here um, and and some other publications start uh, capsule for example and and all of the school road publications uh, you know, start up into into the void left by Bauer, the Metro and North and South, and and some of the other uh, publications, uh, you know, like the Listener, have been bought in some ways. You know, particularly in North and South and Metro's case, reimagined and really creative and quite striking ways by by new owners. And I think it it is one of those things where I think as a as a 
country and and it's very scary when you see a, a business collapse and obviously you know there is scarring that comes out of it some people really struggle to to find work and so on but you you do see that there are opportunities created by that and it might be that we look back on this in a year's time and say that actually in terms of what the overall state of magazine journalism and the magazine industry in New Zealand is that it's actually a more diverse um, and sort of more modern place than it would have been had Bauer just stayed kind of effectively just holding its position for much longer. Uh, a few other names I want to to single out. I think Newsroom, sort of up the road competitor, had an extraordinary year. They had really, really brilliant investigative work. They sort of challenged, um, you know, sort of some fundamentals of of where government policy and reaction to COVID-19 was sitting, particularly Mark Dolder, one of the standout journalists of the year. Just fantastic agenda-setting piece after agenda-setting piece. They lost Bernard Hickey, who was a real powerhouse, but but uh, recruited Jonathan Milne to replace them. So, you know, pretty amazing year for, for Newsroom. Uh, Māori TV had had a strange year. It was, it was seemingly hugely advantaged by the Māori media shift, which seemed to sort of place it as the default sort of hub for really, in some ways, you, depending on how you read it, all or a vast majority of Māori content within New Zealand. There was a major backlash to that and, and a sort of a, a bit of a climb down. So that, again, remains to be resolved. Tal News, in particular, had a, had a really strong year. And uh, I think after a few years of feeling like it, it was sort of shrinking um, away, there, there are sort of some, some signs of hope for that organisation. But the big sort of unknown is, is what the government will do with the sector uh, after that sort of review which has come out and not really sort of been enacted. I want to to make special mention of uh, a couple of smaller operations, uh, Itangata, who are other close neighbours of ours who, you know, on a on a very small budget and with a, with a tiny staff produce a, a Sunday magazine, as they put it, that, that sort of covers Māori and Pacific uh, issues and often in, in sort of essays and um, opinion pieces that are just very frequently really, really impactful and and beautifully written and they're a, you know, I think an underappreciated uh, highlight of our ecosystem. And another one is uh, Shit You Should Care About, which is largely an Instagram account that covers news from New Zealand, but particularly global news. It's very much global facing. They moved from 250,000 followers at the start of the year, which is already extraordinary, to 2 million by the year's end. This is three young women from Blenheim who run this, one of whom, Lucy Blackiston, had joined the spin-off in 2020. But the innovation and the kind of clarity of vision that they showed in taking that medium and making it a a news forward medium i think just shows that what what remains available to us if we're sort of creative about it as far as deploying platforms which you know instagram's owned by facebook it's not an uncomplicated place but you can do really really great things with it and I think Lucy and her team really showed that you know from Blenheim isn't known as a media capital but to, to do what they did and they're covered on the BBC like a really really amazing effort. 
you know, finally, my own team, I obviously can't talk about the spin-off with uh, anything resembling objectivity, except to say that I was just in awe of them this year. You know, we, like Itangata, we consider ourselves a magazine, but we unavoidably became a news, uh, a much more news-focused product this year and had to do that effectively two times pivoting from slower to faster content. We created live updates. You know, we saw Toby and Susie go genuinely all-time viral. I saw a number of young journalists become, basically teach themselves how to do how to do news in a, in a much more straight-ahead style through, through the uh, first lockdown, doing it from um, working at home, basically becoming shift workers uh, so that we could create a, a sort of 5 a.m. till till 9 p.m. seven-day-a-week product. It was it was an amazing thing to witness and, you know, was rightly rewarded by by members who, who sort of flooded in to to help us when we had that period of genuinely mortal peril. And we see that, you know, we've seen our page views more than double this year and, and a whole heap of other things flow out of that. But I just want to, to thank all all of our staff and and uh, you know if you're yeah if you're if you're listening to this and um, want to help the spin off then if you're if you're not already a member I'd I'd love it if you could become one because every every dollar that is donated to us is is flowed into editorial and helps us grow grow those people hire more journalists and and do more great work and I, I think the whole media and and certainly our organisation uh, sort of deserves the, the support of of everyone who can at the moment. Anyway, that's me having talked for, I don't know, somewhere near an hour. I'm sure you're hardly sick of it by now, but uh, thank you for listening to The Fold in 2020 and uh, for kind of consuming the, the, <laughs> the New Zealand media through through this very wild year. I want to pay special tribute to Jane, who's recorded this, my real pod buddy, who's just done an amazing job of growing the Spinner podcast this year and to Vodafone once again for supporting The Fold. Just really, really appreciate being able to do this on a, on a bi-weekly basis and looking forward to, to growing it further in, in 2021. Also, final shout-out to Stuart Somanland, uh, who's, who's been researcher for me this year, and Lucy Raymer, who has, has uh, wrangled our guests. Have a great break. Kia ora e te iwi. Te Aihe Butler here, podcast manager at The Spinoff. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a spin-off member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.